It's Wednesday, August 15th, and this is The Daily Dive. The state of Nebraska just experienced a series of firsts Tuesday morning. It was the state's first execution since 1997. The first execution by lethal injection. Prior to this, the state used the electric chair. And the first death sentence in the country carried out with the use of the opioid fentanyl. Brent Martin, news director for the Nebraska Radio Network, joins us for a fascinating conversation about Nebraska's strange history with the death penalty, abolishing it in 2015 and reinstating it a year later. The use of fentanyl as states are running out of drugs used in lethal injection cocktails. And also, who was the inmate on death row? Carrie Dean Moore. Next, the war of words continues between the White House and former aide Omarosa Manigault Newman. The president continues to rail against her, calling her a dog, and she remains defiant, continuing to release audio tapes of the president and others within the White House as she tours the media in advance of her new book. Andrew Rastusha, White House reporter for Politico, joins us for the latest in the battle. The Trump campaign has filed for arbitration, saying she violated a non-disclosure agreement. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. You may make a final statement at this time. Just the statement that I hand delivered to you already about my brother Donnie and the innocent men on Nebraska's death row. That's all that I have to say. The first of four substances were administered at 10.24 a.m. The Lancaster County coroner produced Moore's time of death at 10.47 a.m. Joining us now is Brent Martin, news director for the Nebraska Radio Network. Brent, you were one of the four media witnesses that were allowed to witness the execution of Kerry Dean Moore. Nebraska experienced a series of firsts with the latest execution. It was the first execution in 21 years since 1997. It was the first lethal injection. Prior to this, everything had been done by electric chair. And it was the first death sentence carried out with the use of fentanyl. States across the country have been coming up short with drugs to use for executions, so they decided to go with this. Was this the first execution that you ever witnessed? No, it was not. Of course, first in in Nebraska. Previously, I was a journalist in Missouri and actually covered Missouri executions on a regular basis and actually witnessed 13 executions between 1996 and 2005, all by lethal injection, all in Missouri. I have to ask, do these things weigh on you after witnessing these things? Do you think about them in the days after? It might seem odd to your listeners, but no, I do not. I think I have always tried to approach them professionally, and I've tried to be somewhat detached and keep it cubbyhole in that professional part, never really think of them personally, because we're a statewide radio network. We have 40 affiliates throughout the state. We believe that it is part of our solemn responsibility if the state is going to have the ultimate punishment. We need to be there to report on it and to tell the public to be an independent witness, independent eyes, if you will on the execution and report faithfully to the public. So I've always tried to approach it in that manner professionally. Who is Kerry Dean Moore and why was he up for execution? Kerry Dean Moore, he was 21 years old when in August of 1979, he in effect planned and lured two Omaha cab drivers to his residence to kill them and to rob them. He planned it in advance. He made several calls to different cab drivers. He told police when one cabbie came up, he was too young, too much like him, and he didn't think he could kill him. Both Rule Van Ness Jr. and Maynard Hegelin were 47 years old, both shot in the head. 
There was reports even that at one point, as you said, he was luring cab drivers. His mother was a cab driver and he jumped into her cab at one point and he didn't know what to do. It surprised him. He said, just take me home. And, you know, she dropped him off back at home. And then he went out again, right back into downtown to go look for somebody, supposedly. Well, it's even that he was casing, if you will, trying to see how cab drivers would react, what would be the best way of doing it. Really macabre stuff. Later in his years, he became a born-again Christian. He said he believed that Jesus did forgive him for the murders. He really did seem remorseful. You know, he said the only thing that pained him really was knowing that the families had to live through all that stuff. And at the end of it also, he wanted to give up all the appeals. He wanted the whole process over. He hated being there in jail. He stated he was guilty. He did not try to cover that at all. He dropped all legal appeals. And there were many people here who believed that he had very strong case to file legal appeals and object to this because of the novel approach, the four-drug protocol that hadn't been used anywhere in the United States. The ACLU was trying to, the Nebraska Commission on Public Advocacy wanted to file the appeals, but he just said, no, I don't want any more appeals. I don't want to live on death row anymore. I want to go to my death. One thing he did say, he felt remorse for luring his younger brother, Donald, who participated in the first murder and is now on parole. He said he regretted that. Nebraska has a weird history with the death penalty. I think it was a few That's years ago. That's a good ago. way to put it. Really <laughs> yeah, weird. I mean, a, a few years ago, the legislature voted to abandon it. Mm-hmm. And then the governor at the time raised money to put it back on the ballot. And voters, I think, overwhelmingly supported it. I think it was like 61 percent, something around there. Well, and if you go back even farther in the history of the Nebraska unicameral, the the only unicameral in the country, but the legislature had considered banning the death penalty for years and came very, very close. And I cover the legislature, and it was quite an incredible atmosphere when they considered it in, I, I think it was 2016, And they did barely get the votes together to not only get rid of the death penalty, but to overcome the veto of the governor. The governor vetoed the the bill. And then, as you said, Governor Pete Ricketts did, in part, fund the initiative petition that placed it on the November ballot in 2016. And Nebraska voters did overwhelmingly approve putting capital punishment back on the books. Now on to the use of the fentanyl, the first time this has been done in any execution. Right off the bat, in your experience witnessing the execution, did it work effectively? It seemed to. From all the aspects that we could see, it seemed to. These took much longer than I am used to for lethal injection, and states have had trouble finding the sodium thiopental, which they used to use in the traditional three-drug protocol. So they went to this first diazepam, which is mainly Valium, and then fentanyl citrate to try to mimic what sodium thiopental did prior. And it seemed to, because we were able to observe not only his body going still, but the acting warden made a consciousness check. He did his eyelids, took a pen light, put it in his eyes to see if he was unconscious before the final two lethal drugs were injected into him. So from our observation, what I've tried to say is it appeared to go as the corrections officials intended it to go. The first two drugs, as you said, render them unconscious. The next two are the ones that actually stop the life. One to 
stop the breathing. The next is to stop the heart from beating again. As you said, Scott Frakes, the director of Nebraska's Department of Correctional Services, they said that he had to contact at least 40 suppliers, half a dozen other states seeking drugs for this to happen. They've been in such short supply across the states. That's why they fell on the fentanyl for this one. As we know, fentanyl has been widely cited in the opioid epidemic. It's kind of the reason why a lot of people are overdosing and things like that. They're running out of other options, and they've fallen on this drug that's been so popularized in the opioid epidemic. Well, and somebody suggested if enough fentanyl were administered to him, he would die of a fentanyl overdose right. because it is such a powerful drug. I, I don't know enough about drugs to give any kind of opinion. I'm just passing along what somebody said. But yes, states that do have lethal injection are having trouble finding the drugs that they used to rely on for lethal injection. And they've come up with these, as you said, a novel approach. I think Nevada was the first state to propose this type. Now, I'm, You're right. It was gonna, okay. They were going to use it for an inmate named Scott Dozier, but right. another it, drug company filed a suit and they stopped it because of the other company that didn't glad, want their drug used. Yeah, glad you could back me up on that because <laughs> I, I Nevada proposed it, but then the right. courts blocked it. And because Moore did not offer a legal challenge, really the courts never got involved in, in looking at this four drug protocol and determining whether this should be used. So I interviewed a Nebraska College of Law professor who knows about lethal injection, those sort of things. He said this, this execution will go on with many questions left unanswered. I can't imagine, you know, with the bad choice of words, but the quote unquote success of this method, this four drug cocktail here, it might lead it to be used in a lot of other states. It's the drug companies that are getting involved, really trying to not have them be used in these executions. A lot of the companies are saying, you know, our drugs are made for life-saving purposes, not for this purpose specifically. Right. And we had the drug companies, as you had mentioned, object to it here. But I think courts are reluctant to really find, if you will, standing for the drug companies and they need to have somebody other than that. And again, if Moore had objected, then obviously he had standing in it. And the courts, I think, would have taken a much more serious look at it. And it was also interesting. I know that the courts, the federal courts, were critical of one of the drug companies saying that you're, you're coming late to this. And if you really objected to this, you should have filed it prior. Also, there are some concerns that the Department of Correctional Services here in Nebraska has not been as forthright with how it obtained these drugs. There were some lawsuits to try to get them to disclose how they got the drugs, which would probably help us to understand more about their effectiveness and how they were used, this sort of thing. But those also never really got to the courts in time. Right. And, th- and that was kind of a similar case in uh, we, we referenced the Las Vegas, the Nevada case with Scott Dozier there. They were saying that the state had illegally obtained those drugs. So, yeah, these drug companies really want to know how everybody's getting it so that it's on the up and up. Right. And I think the thing with Nebraska, I think Nebraska said we didn't listen. We didn't obtain them illegally. They might have not completely been forthright with how they were going to use them, but they, they obtained them legally. And I think that was the court's stance, is they were obtained legally. Whether you as a drug company believe that they misrepresented how they were going to use it is between you and your customer, but it's not a legal issue. Were you able to speak to any of the families of the victims? 
No. We were told that some of the family would be there, but then they didn't show up. I think there were a couple that were going to be there, and then they didn't. I, I have not talked to anybody in the family. There have been other reporters who I've talked to who said that it, it's just been so long, and it keeps coming up. One of the things with Moore, too, is he had, this was his eighth execution date. He had seven execution dates dating back to September 20th of 1980. And it had always been postponed. So you can imagine the family members of the victims just had gone through this and gone through it and gone through it, just didn't want to go through it again. In the end, they reported that he mouthed, I love you, to some of the family members. Was there anything, other things in parting that he that he said or did? He mouthed some other words that none of us could really decipher. We couldn't, couldn't tell what it was. I mean, it's pretty easy to see, I love you. I think anybody can read those lips. But some of the other things... And at one point, I may be stretching it a bit, but it looked like he turned to the ceiling, and it, it appeared, his eyes to the ceiling, and it appeared that maybe he was saying a prayer. Uh, but that's just speculation. Uh, but I can't imagine, because he was looking straight at the ceiling, and he was mouthing some words, so perhaps he was making a uh, prayer. And then he turned back uh, to his witnesses and mouthed some words that we could not distinguish. Brent Martin. News Director for the Nebraska Radio Network. Thank you very much for joining us. You are welcome. Uh, I think the president is certainly voicing his frustration uh, with the fact that this person has shown a complete lack of integrity, particularly by the actions following her time here at the White House. The president uh, addressed that question directly via Twitter. I'd refer you back to him. I can certainly say I've never heard him use uh, that term or anything similar. Joining us now is Andrew Restucia, White House reporter for Politico. The Trump campaign has filed for arbitration against Omarosa. She's on her book tour. She's hitting the media very hard right now. She's got a bunch of recorded tapes that she made of John Kelly, the president, other aides there in the White House. And now they're saying that she violated a non-disclosure agreement that she signed. What else do we know? Omarosa actually says that she signed two non-disclosure agreements, one in 2003 when she was working on The Apprentice, or when she appeared on The Apprentice, and another in 2016 when she worked on the presidential campaign. The NDA at issue now is the 2016 NDA. We actually obtained a copy of it, and it prevents people from working on the campaign from disparaging or releasing confidential information about Trump, his business, his family members, including his grandchildren, and even family members' companies. So now the Trump campaign is holding Omarosa accountable for signing this document and then subsequently revealing all sorts of information about the campaign and obviously disparaging Trump and the people around him. What is the wording like in those NDAs? Because one that I had seen some text of just seemed very broadly, and it basically says you can never, ever, ever say anything bad about Trump for the rest of your life. That's what it basically seems like. The campaign's NDA basically does say that it's, it's in perpetuity, which which means forever. Um, they're pretty strict terms. I talked to people who signed the NDA on the campaign. Some people didn't even really look at it that closely, thinking it was the sort of thing that was very common. But this is not common in the world of government. And of course, White House staffers were pushed to sign a separate non-disclosure agreement, which restricted them from not only talking about classified information, which there are NDAs to prevent people from talking about classified information in the government. But this one went even further. They, they couldn't even talk about confidential or private information about the president. Omarosa generally has a credibility issue. I, that's why she's saying she 
made all these tapes so that she knows that, uh, you know, the media can't spin it another way. Yes, I'm the kind of person who covers her own back. In Trump world, everyone lies. Everyone says one thing one day and they change their story the next day. I wanted to have this type of documentation so that in the event I found myself in this position where, as you said, they're questioning my credibility. From her time on The Apprentice and just her media life, she's always been this kind of villain. Then she made it to the White House. Everybody was kind of like, why, you know, why is she even there? But she is in the room for a lot of these things. She was in a lot of these discussions. That's why she has those tapes. What a breach of trust, really. I mean, she was recording everybody, it seemed like. Yeah, I mean, and it's difficult to make the case, as the White House has tried to in the past, that, that she had no influence and she she had no interactions with the president. We know that, that, she, that she has, and we have the tapes to prove it, right? She's had conversations with the president. Not only did she have access, but she was granted the highest possible salary that a government official in the White House can get, $179,000 a year. And that's on par with the White House chief of staff, the national security advisor. The White House is trying to, in some ways, rewrite history at this point by saying that she you know, she was this ineffectual person with that influence. And in fact, she, she had quite a bit of influence. She's on the book tour now, and she's uh, making a lot of allegations, saying the president is a racist and he's a misogynist. And she's centering a lot of that around this supposed tape from The Apprentice days where he was using the N-word a lot. The press secretary, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, today said she couldn't confirm that he never said that. And then she went off to talk about uh, the NDAs a lot. I think Michael Cohen sent out a tweet saying that a lot of journalists are calling him saying that he never saw the president put a piece of paper in his mouth and eat it. Frank Luntz also saying that he never said anything about the president saying the N-word. So who are we to believe here? She says that everything in her book is backed by some type of audio tape or email. I think we should be clear. I mean, no one has surfaced any credible evidence of a tape from the Celebrity Apprentice days of the president using the N-word. It's also notable that, that Omarosa herself, in her book, originally said that she hadn't heard a tape and only had heard tell of the tape from, from people. And she subsequently, on her book tour, said that she has, in fact, heard the tape. So there's a contradiction there as well. We just don't know. I mean, it is notable that one of the White House press secretaries, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, is, is declining to, to outright guarantee that Trump has never used the word. That's certainly an unusual statement from a press secretary. But we just don't know, right? I mean, we, we just don't know what's, what's, what's going to come. What is she on the hook for for violating that NDA? I've read that she has about 14 days to respond to the demand for arbitration. Would they pull her book? What kind of things would she be responsible for doing? We reported at Politico that the White House NDA, which Omarosa says she did not sign notably, that she did sign the one during the campaign, but not on the White House, did include language about restricting book sales and staffers' ability to write a book. But the campaign NDA did not have any of that language. So it's unlikely that the book would ever be pulled. It's also unclear exactly how legally solid the NDA from the campaign is. And this is going to be need to be worked out in, in an arbitration agreement between her lawyer and the lawyer that's representing the Trump campaign. So at this point, it's sort of unclear what the consequences might be. If there are consequences, they would be monetary in nature, I would imagine, versus you know some sort of criminal response. Yeah, I think I saw that since the campaign is an ongoing organization, it holds through everything, basically. And that's kind of where they're trying to still hold her accountable, since, as you said, she didn't sign the one coming out of the White House. Omarosa has said there's a lot of tapes, audio tapes that she made. So I guess as the book tour continues, there might be more stuff to hear. 
I think that's true. Yeah, I think Omarosa, it's in her interest to release these tapes slowly and to build up the hoopla around her book. You know, she's very smart. So she's playing the media just as the president would be playing the media and in hopes of uh, those higher book sales. So we'll see what happens. Andrew Restusha, White House reporter for Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. All right, that's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive. <laughs>